Open your Bibles to John 3. John chapter 3, we'll read verses 1 to 8 in just a moment. John 3, verses 1 through 8. We have taken a short break from our Genesis series to look at how the New Testament picks up certain themes from the book of Genesis and what it does with them. And so last week we looked at the question of life and death. And we saw that even in Genesis there was set forth this idea that life is not mere physical existence, but rather it is a right relationship with God. It is a physical existence that is aligned with God's intent and purposes for our existence. And that death was to be out of accord with God's plan, to be walking not in the way that he ordained and designed. So that God could say, and it was true, that in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die, for they died that day. They ceased to have the existence they were intended to have. Life and death have more to do with our alignment, our walk with God, than they do with any physical attributes. And we saw how physical death is a warning sign, is a reminder of spiritual death, of eternal death, that there is coming a day of accountability, and one must be prepared for that. So that if one walks by faith in this life with Christ, if we have life now, it can be called an eternal life, an everlasting life. For even at death, we will still be rightly aligned with our God. It's why Jesus could say, we saw last week, that he could say, even though he die, the one who believes will yet live. Life and death are set forth in the scriptures as a uh, uh, describing a status of how we relate to God. This morning we're going to look at how life can be restored in the one who is dead. If you are out of accord with God... How does that get changed? How does one become alive in the spirit? And if you are alive, well, how did you get to be that way? You know the old question, Mommy, where did I come from? We all want to understand our origins. And so we will understand what Jesus teaches on this topic. We're going to look at John 3, verses 1 to 8. Quick, set the stage for you. Uh, it is a, a Pharisee, a leader of the Jews named Nicodemus, that he's called a leader of the Jews, a ruler of the Jews, uh, means he was on the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a, a court. There were two different levels of the Sanhedrin. There would be a local Sanhedrin in each village and town, but then there was the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem overall. It was basically the Supreme Court of Judaism. Down in uh, uh, verse 12, we're not going to read that far, but in verse 12, Jesus refers, 11 or 12, Jesus refers to Nicodemus as the teacher of Israel. The suggestion being that he was not just on the Sanhedrin, but that he was probably the leader of the Sanhedrin, the chair, the, the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, oh, you have associate justices and the main, 
Help me out. Thank you. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. He was essentially the Chief Justice of their Supreme Court. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, as we will see. I have no doubt that it was actually at night, but I think that John points that de- later. If you, if you study John closely, you see there are a lot of stories. He leaves a lot of details out. He includes that detail because day and night, light and dark, become themes for John. Thus, Nicodemus comes at night because he is one walking in the dark. He does not understand. He is spiritually blind. And he comes to Jesus. Nicodemus is an interesting one among the Pharisees. In the book of John, John does not look at the Pharisees very positively. And yet Nicodemus, described as a Pharisee, is one who we will see at the end of the Gospel of John, is a believer in Jesus. He joins Joseph of Arimathea to care for the body of Jesus, to honor it. He brings 75 pounds of spices to mask the smell of the decaying flesh of Jesus. And church history holds, church tradition holds that he went on to give his life for Jesus after suffering much for the name of Jesus. So with that quick background, let's take a look at John 3, uh, verses one through eight. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, that means teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now we have seen many times that the most common purpose of miraculous signs in the Bible is to validate God's messengers, especially if those messengers come in a new way or with a new revelation. So Moses, the lawgiver, is validated by God with miraculous signs so that the people would know that he has a right to bring God's law. Elijah becomes the first of a new class of prophets, a class that you might call prosecuting prophets, condemning the people for their disobedience to the law. And so that the people would know that the condemnation came not from Elijah, but from God himself, Elijah was empowered with with miraculous signs. When there is a new revelation, often it is accompanied with these miraculous signs. And here we have God come in the flesh for the first time in human history. God incarnate. And to validate him, to show that he has a right to teach the way he teaches, to show that he has the authority to proclaim what he proclaims, God validates him with miracles. And Nicodemus recognizes that. By the way, the next time God comes in the flesh, the next time Jesus comes to earth as a human being, there will be no need of miracles. For everyone will know, it will be obvious from one end of the earth to the other, that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, and all will proclaim his glory. He will not need miracles to accompany him next time. But on this time, he was given miracles that we might recognize him. And it's an amazing thing that Nicodemus says here. He admits that they know he's from God. We know you're from God. And still we won't listen to you. 
That's profound. How many of us have said, if only God would come speak to me, it would be so much easier. He was speaking to them, and they knew he was speaking to them. And they did not listen. We have to ponder that for a moment. For if we don't consider the why of that, what's behind that, the rest of what we're about to read will not make sense. For Jesus is going to explain why they didn't listen. Verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, that's a, a formula common to the book of John in which, by which Jesus is trying to drive home the importance of what he's going to say next. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The Greek word here, uh, anothen, translated again, is an ambiguous word, and that's exactly why John is using it. Anothen can mean again, but it can mean from above. James says that all good gifts come anothen. They come from above. Later, even in John 3, this word will appear and it'll be clearly meaning from above. John points it out here, uses this. There is an ambiguity here. There is confusion. Jesus is talking about being born from above, which, of course, by the way, is being born again, right? If you're born from above, that's a second birth. It is being born again, okay? Um, Jesus is talking about being born from above, and Nicodemus is misunderstanding and pursuing a mere physical comprehension of these things. And so we read verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus may actually be mocking Jesus ever so slightly right here. He is pointing out the absurdity of Jesus' statement. This is an impossibility. We're not kangaroos, not that Nicodemus knew anything about kangaroos, but we're not kangaroos that can climb back into our mommy's pouch. A man cannot be reborn. This is just absurd. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be born of water and the Spirit? A great deal has been written about this, but I think it's fairly straightforward. Is the water referring to uh, a mother's water breaking in the process of labor beginning? Probably not. There is no historical evidence that that kind of phraseology, that kind of terminology was in use back in this day. That's a fairly modern way of talking about it. So that's probably not what's in play here. And in fact, if you look down at verse 10, which again, we're not actually going to read that far, but if you look down at verse 10, you see Jesus actually reprimands Nicodemus for not knowing these things. That's a hint. In other words, as a student of the scriptures, Nicodemus should have understood what Jesus was talking about. So this idea of being born of water and the spirit must be rooted in the scriptures. And I'm going to suggest to you and point out to you that one of those was our Old Testament reading where Jesus where where God says to Israel you know I will uh, uh, restore you I will give you a heart of flesh I will take away your heart of stone and in the passage we read it talked about how the detestable and abominable things will be removed 
They'll be washed. Later in Ezekiel, in chapter 36, verse 25, we have this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from your uncleanness from all of your idols. I will cleanse you. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you should know what it means to be born of water and the Spirit. You should understand the need to be washed clean. You're the teacher of Israel. Come on. How can you not know this? Some have suggested they're talking about baptism only in an indirect way. For Christian baptism did not yet exist when they're having their conversation. But baptism points to washing, and they're pointing to washing. So they're converging on the same idea. Picking up in verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And hopefully we begin now to see why Jesus has used this word anothen. To be born again, you have to be born from above, from where the spirit metaphorically resides. You've got to be born of heaven to be part of the kingdom of heaven. Number seven, verse seven, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And now there's a play on words for in Greek, the word for wind is exactly the same word as spirit. The wind, the spirit, blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Lord, inasmuch as we are born again, born from above, let this, your word, feed our spirit lives, nourishing us on the truth. But Lord, if there are any hearing this word who, like Nicodemus, are not born from above, do a work in them even today. Bring life to them. Give them rebirth by the power of your word. Amen. It's that time of year where we have award shows. Last Sunday was the Oscars, tonight's the Grammys, um, I think officially the, the 64th annual Grammy Awards, you know, tonight. And with award shows go acceptance speeches. You're familiar with this, even if you don't watch regularly, you're familiar with the acceptance speech. Uh, I want to thank the Academy for this unbelievable honor. Uh, thanks to the producers who trusted me, the director who, who just brought out so much in me. I want to thank my long-suffering wife for all the many hours I spent on set. This film was just a great honor to be a part of it. You know, I, I, I wanted to be alive. I wanted to be an actor, and, and so I wanted this life. And without my parents, it just wouldn't have been possible. So I asked for life, and my parents gave me life. So now I want to thank my parents as well for that life they've given me that I asked for. Can you imagine anyone giving an acceptance speech like that? Even the most devout, ardent Scientologist in Hollywood wouldn't go off that deep end. It's absurd to think that we have life because we ask for life. And that's Jesus' point to Nicodemus. The simple illustration of how life becomes, comes into one who is otherwise dead is the simple illustration of physical birth. You must be born in another way. You must be born again. You must be born anew. And just as 
you had nothing to do with your physical birth, Nicodemus, you need to understand how rebirth occurs. So we're going to unpack this and talk about this. We're going to look at three things. We're going to talk about the fact that you must be born again means your physical life is irrelevant when it comes to kingdom membership. Your physical life is irrelevant when it comes to kingdom membership. You must be born again means you can do nothing to make it happen. You cannot bring it about. You must be born again means that you have to be born of the Spirit. You must be born again means your physical life is irrelevant. You must be born again means you can do nothing. And you must be born again means that you must be born of the Spirit. So let's take a look at those one at a time. You must be born again means your physical life is irrelevant when it comes to kingdom membership. Now that may not be obvious at first reading, that Jesus is teaching that. That may not jump off the page to you, but let me explain why it jumped off the page to Nicodemus. Well, it would have been on the page. It jumped off the lips of Jesus to Nicodemus. So we know from the many ancient Jewish writings that are, have been retained and uncovered and revealed through archaeology that in the first century, at the time of Jesus and Nicodemus, it was the, the, the dogma of Jewish doctrine that to be born an Israelite meant you were part of the kingdom of God. So long as you never blasphemed God, so long as you did not go uh, fall into apostasy, you were, by virtue of your birth, part of the kingdom of God. After all, the covenant was given to Abraham and his descendants. So if I'm a descendant of Abraham, I'm covered. I'm part of the kingdom. I'm in. This, by the way, a little aside, this is one of the reasons that uh, the, the Jewish people tend to be interested in genealogy. To be able to trace that ancestry becomes important. To be able to make a claim to be part of the kingdom. So Nicodemus is, a, is an Israelite. He is a Jew. Not just any Jew. He's a Pharisee. These were the biblical conservatives. These were the, the guys who generally had most of their doctrine right. They believed in the afterlife. They believed in angels. They believed in miracles. They believed there was a Messiah coming. Unlike a lot of other Jews, their doctrine was actually quite biblical. And they believed in the importance of personal righteousness so that they went to phenomenal lengths to preserve their personal righteousness. And Nicodemus is so good at this that he's risen to the highest level one could rise, short of being the high priest, but since he's not a descendant of Levi, he could not be the high priest. So he's risen to the highest rank that he could have in Judaism. And by the way, he comes off as a pretty decent guy, doesn't he? Unlike a lot of the other Pharisees we meet who seem kind of like jerks, he seems like a good guy. If there was ever anybody who walked the earth who could lay claim to the kingdom of God by virtue of their physical existence, it was Nicodemus. 
He had it all going for him. The right lineage, the right uh, 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 doctrine, the, the right position in society. And Jesus says, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Nicodemus, the life into which you've been born doesn't cut it. It doesn't get it done. You need a different life. What you have and what you've done are null and void. This would have stunned Nicodemus. Knocked him off his chair. And I think it needs to do the same to us. We've got to set aside whatever it is about this life that we're clinging to. I mean, come on, pastor, you know, I'm a wasp, I'm white, I'm Anglo-Saxon, I'm Protestant. Surely God loves those people in a special way. Nothing about this physical life matters for kingdom membership. If Nicodemus's genealogy didn't matter, surely yours and mine do not. But I'm a Republican. I give generously to conservative politics. He was a Pharisee, and it didn't matter. There is nothing about the claims you can make in this life. When you are challenged on your status, when you are called out for being a sinner, do not point to the things of this life as your confidence. For there is nothing in this life that offers any assurance that you're a member in the kingdom. If that was true of Nicodemus, it has to be true of you and me. Nothing in our mere physical lives matters for kingdom Membership. Number two, there is nothing you can do to bring about the needed rebirth. Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. Not go back and start over again. Not go to some reset point in your life where you can pick it up and resume from there. You've got to be born again. In other words, Nicodemus, you're helpless. And Nicodemus sees the absurdity of this. You're telling me I'm not in the kingdom, but you're also telling me I can't put myself in the kingdom. Nicodemus calls Jesus out on the absurdity of this. Can a man re-enter his mother's womb and be born a second time? Come on, this is just, what is this? But that's Jesus' point. And we're back to the illustration of the acceptance speech. For who would ever think that they had anything to do with their physical existence. For the pre-living, I couldn't come up with a better term. They're not dead because they didn't live, and, uh, didn't live and then die. You know, so I don't know, I have a better term. So the pre-living cannot possibly initiate their lives. They don't exist. And Jesus says, when you're dead in sin, actually here when he says you don't even have a spirit life, it's not that you have a dead spirit life. It's you don't have one. You have to be born 
It has to be not something you do, but it's something that is done to you. You know, think about your physical lives. Not only do we not initiate them, but most of us for two, three, four years don't even realize we have them. We're not even cognizant. We're not even aware of our lives. We can't even process the fact that we are alive. We're alive for a long time before we start to realize we're alive. So it is in the spirit life as well. You may be alive for quite a while before it begins to dawn on you that you're alive. What difference does this make? This technicality, this nuance of doctrine. Well, let me give you an illustration an illustration that relates to the issue of confidence of salvation. And we will come back around to this uh, the last Sunday of April and talk more about this topic, but just briefly right now. Illustration from the Christian school where I was the headmaster. So a group of seniors were getting ready to graduate, and there was a discussion about having these seniors each give their testimony as they went across the stage to get their diplomas. And a couple of the faculty members raised a concern about that. And they said, you know, we've got one student who's not a Christian. What testimony would she give? She makes no profession of faith, nor does she project faith in any way. There's nothing about her walk or her talk that would suggest she is a believer. And something interesting happened in that meeting. One of the people there said, oh, no, no, it's good. I know she's a Christian, I was at the camp meeting when she raised her hand. I know she's alive in the spirit because I saw her do something. That must then obligate God to follow through and grant life. If your confidence of spiritual life is rooted in something you've done. You need to rethink what it means to be alive in the Spirit. It is not what you do. It is not anything you have done or said. It comes from outside you and is done to you. Now, do real, authentic believers raise their hands at camp meetings? Do they go forward at crusades? Do they walk down an aisle at a church? Yes. Yes. But that's not what initiates their spirit life. That is a response to the life they've been given. They've been reborn. They come to realize they are alive, and they make a a public declaration of that newfound faith. It's not a necessary thing, but it can be part of the process. We are not made alive by anything we do. You know, this is a really simple doctrine to state and a really hard one to live by. For it is incredibly tempting to fall back on the things we've done. It's easy to say, all glory to God for my salvation. It's hard to turn around and actually give him all the glory for my salvation. For at some point, that temptation to slip in there what I did. You've been made alive in Christ. You've been reborn. You've been born from above. 
and you had as much to do with that as you had to do with your physical birth. How is Jesus going to say it even later here in the Gospel of John? He says this, John 6, the spirit gives life, the flesh counts for a little bit, the flesh counts for nothing. Whatever estate uh, in this life you have doesn't matter. Whatever, is go- whatever, you, you, whatever you've done doesn't change that estate. You must be born again. Two quick thoughts about the implications of this second point. First, just as I already suggested, recite your testimony in your head. Pretend you've been asked to come up here and give your testimony in a worship service and think through. Who's the star of your testimony? Is it I did this? Is it I prayed this prayer? I went and did this? I raised my hand here? I, or is it God worked in me? The Spirit convicted me through a sermon. Jesus revealed himself through me, to me through the words of a friend. Is, it, is God the star? Is Jesus the star? Is the Holy Spirit the star of your testimony? Or are you? And if you were asked to give that testimony, would we hear the pronoun I over and over and over again? Secondly, let, it think, let, you, let this impact how you share how you witness, how you uh, evangelize others. You know, we tend to, in the church, talk about the truth of the gospel, talk about the truth of salvation, in order to elicit a response from the person. But I would propose to you that there's probably no other truth in life in which we, we do that. When we teach a child that 2 plus 2 is 4, We don't say, 2 plus 2 is 4, do you believe that? And if they say, well, yes, Mommy, I believe that. Okay, we're good to go. No, we model 2 plus 2 equaling 4. We talk about 2 plus 2 equaling 4. We correct it when they get it wrong. When they say 2 plus 2 is 5, we say, no, honey, that's not right. It becomes just a part of what we do and who we are. The truth just seeps in, and eventually it seeps into them. And one day we see them living out the truth of 2 plus 2. We see them adding correctly, manipulating things correctly. And we recognize, not because they said, I believe that, but because they eventually live according to the truth. And I've kind of given away that sermon at the end of April. We do not need to elicit a response in our evangelism. We need to proclaim the truth. The truth that there is accountability to God. The truth that there is a way to get out from underneath our accountability to God. The truth that Jesus paid that price, that his resurrection proves that he paid that price. And that we need to trust in him, walk in him. Not waiting for a response from the person, but just keep preaching the truth. Until it, by the power of God, it seeps into them. Oh, are there people who have instantaneous conversions? Absolutely. We need to look look no further than the Apostle Paul. But we see many for whom it's a process of growing. And then one day they realize they're alive. You must be born again means your physical life is irrelevant 
for kingdom membership. You must be born again means there is nothing you can do to bring about new life. For those of you who take notes, you're going to be most unhappy with me. But I want to go back to that first point for just a moment. You must be born again means that there is nothing about your physical life that is relevant for kingdom membership. You know, we looked at Nicodemus and that all the goodness of his life, all the status of his life, all the, 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 the pride and position of his life did not matter. But flip over one page to John 4. I'm not going to read it, but just kind of look at the headline there. Scan it. What is, the, what is John 4? The very next story that John's going to tell us about Jesus is Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. Now, Samaritans were outcast by Jewish standards. This woman holds the precise opposite end of the social spectrum. Women were looked down on in that society. So Nicodemus was a high-positioned, high-ranked man of good breeding. She is a low-positioned, low-ranked woman of detestable breeding. He's a Pharisee who lives the right kind of life, and she's a slut. And the message of Jesus is the same to both of them. You need a different life. You need a new life. And he says to the one at the well, this water you're pulling out here ain't going to get it done. It isn't going to make any difference. You need a different kind of water because you need a different kind of life. And I point that out to remind us, whichever end of the spectrum you're on, you need a new life. There's nothing good that Nicodemus did that merited that new life. There is also no evil that the woman at the well could have done to prevent her from getting that life. You cannot earn your way into it, nor can you do anything that the blood of Christ cannot overcome and keep you out of it. You must be born again. Third point. You must be born again means that you have to be born of the Spirit. Now we're back to a Genesis theme, each according to its kind. Jesus has made the case that Nicodemus and me and you and the woman at the well must be born again. Nicodemus pointed out the absurdity of a man re-entering his mother's womb, and Jesus points out that that would do no good anyway. To put it in our language, Jesus is saying, this is not a video game wherein you make a mistake, you slip up, and you just overcome it with a second or third life. You don't just need another life. You need a different life. You need spirit life. And that has to come from God. You must be born again means you must be born of the Spirit. And since each produces according to its kind, as it was pointed out in creation, fish do not lay bird eggs, neither do cats give birth to dogs, cows don't raise up chickens. Now more than a few poodle owners have been a little surprised by the German shepherds in the puppy mix. Nevertheless, they're not kittens, they're still dogs. Poodles and German shepherds can produce according to their kind. 
We've said that nothing about one's physical life makes any difference. Not Nicodemus' high standing, nor the one at the well's low standing. Both needed new and different lives. And we said there's nothing we can do to bring about the needed new life. And now Jesus sums up the reason. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Anything you do in your humanity, in your fleshliness, the best it can produce is more flesh. Each according to its kind. You need new life. Like the life that Adam was given back in the garden. You need the spirit to step in and breathe life into you and make you alive. You need to be born of the spirit. Each according to its kind. To have Life, real life, spiritual life, everlasting life, kingdom life, you have to be, you have to belong to the king. And there's no better way than to be a prince or princess in the household of the king. To be born into the king's family is to be guaranteed a place in the kingdom. And it's the only way, Jesus says. It's a funny doctrine, the doctrine of adoption in Christianity. We talk about adoption, and we rightly should. The Bible talks about adoption. But it's a weird adoption. It's an adoption in which we are reborn. (laughs) We are born into a new family. Not merely a signature put on a piece of paper. Not that there's anything not important about the the legalities of that. But it goes deeper. It goes richer. It's fuller. We, be, we take on the very uh, uh, DNA, as it were, of the Holy Spirit, of the Christ who sent the Spirit, so that we become one of his. And so we're sitting here, we're going, well, Pastor, there's nothing I can do at all? Correct. So I just lie dead in sin, waiting for hell, hoping for heaven? Incorrect. When a baby calls out for food, a loving mother feeds the baby. She does not ask the baby, Honey, do you understand that Daddy and I gave you life? Do you understand the only reason you're crying is because we made you? No, she feeds the baby in response to the baby's cry for food. The baby need not understand how it became alive to be alive. And the baby need not understand how, to be, that it, uh, how it came to be alive in order to desire to sustain that life. So if you're sitting here saying, well, if I can't do anything but I want to be part of the kingdom, I'm telling you, believe you're part of the kingdom. That's why it's a walk of faith. Believe it. Rejoice in it. Celebrate it. Live it. Nourish it. Feed it. Grow it. Mature it. If you're crying out for the nourishment of eternal life, it's because you're alive. The dead don't seek spiritual nourishment. That's the amazing part of this. Is it comes upon us and we realize, I'm alive. Even if we don't understand how we got If your head's spinning at this point, eh, mine is a little bit too. Again, it's an easier doctrine to spell out than it is to live. 
but just because you stumble along the way doesn't make you any less alive. Just because you have trouble comprehending the aspects of you could actually fail high school biology and you're still physically alive. Not that I'm encouraging you to fail high school biology, okay? Oh boy. <laughs> you're still physically alive. You don't have to be able to recite all the nuances of this doctrine to be alive. Just rejoice in the truth that you've been made alive. Lord, thank you for the teaching of Jesus. Thank you for his teaching that, his teaching that a new life comes from you. And that when we find this life in us, we recognize that you're the one who put it here. And because you put it here, it's a sure thing. We don't have to worry about our losing it because you've provided it. Because you've put it here, it's something you're concerned about. You're going to nourish. You're going to tend to it. Because you've put it here, you will respond to our cries for help. Because you've made us alive, because we've been born of your spirit, you're going to help us up when we fall. You're going to feed us when we're hungry. Encourage us when we're despondent. Help us when we're in despair. Help us rejoice in the good news of, the, of being born from above, of being born again and all the certainty and hope that provides us. We pray this in Christ's name, the one who taught these things. Amen.